at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casello. With me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy NBA Draft Week. Although, uh, for the first time in a while, it's a pretty Syracuse-free NBA Draft Week. Yeah, I am. Uh, I think I'm excited about that. I think a lot of others are, too. It's not that, you know, if Ty's Battle was in, I would have been, you know, optimistic, and I would have been very positive about his chances to get drafted and very positive about you know, uh, my hopes for him in the NBA. But obviously, since he's not in, uh, we can be a little bit more kind of casual viewers, at least from a Syracuse perspective, and just worry about the fact that, you know, we could be a top 15, 20 team next season um, and then just focus on, you know, next year. That'll happen when it happens. There's a lot of players that could get picked on this year's roster. Um, And we get to kind of focus on, at least for Dan and I, our NBA teams um, and what they may or may not screw up this year, as they are uh, usually a comedy of errors. Our NBA teams, yeah, which which always always do so well. Actually, <laughs> I would say on NBA dra- on draft night, the Nets have actually fared pretty well with what they've had. The problem is they were dealt with an unwinnable situation a couple of years ago. But for a team that has uh, no hope of of uh, playing for you know anything, drafting in the late first round most years now because we trade back in, um, we've done pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you trade half the guys later anyway. Yeah, I mean, and, and Terrence Levert <laughs> looks like a player. Yeah, so you guys are in much, much better shape than, than we are in many ways. I would say except for the not having Porzingis part. Um, but all the other parts, I'd say you guys are in good shape. Although, the Dwight Howard thing, eh. I think the Dwight, I mean, all right. It depends I get on why. What, yeah, it, it, it was a no-brainer because the Mazdov contract, which we took on... Um, just because we were like the dumping ground for bad contracts that we could, you know, get pits and stuff in return for was really, really bad. Dwight is not going to be there past next season. Um, I don't know how much damage he's going to do in the season he's here. And my only concern is that it's going to prevent Jared Allen's uh, development at center because he can't really play anywhere else. So as long as Dwight isn't like taking his minutes or causing like major, major uh, irredeemable issues, which may be the case because he can't stay on a team for more than a year now. Um, it was a locker room poison. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, like, I don't know. I think the Nets have done a pretty good job of establishing, like, some kind of culture that they are, you know, building towards when they can eventually compete again, which, because of this trade, looks like it might be after next season because they have two match spots and will start to get their draft picks back. So I guess it's a, it's a real test to see how bad of a locker room player Dwight Howard is. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's an even bigger test just because of how young the team is. Like, it'd be one thing if, you know, the the Nets were a veteran team full of expiring contracts and things like that. But this is, what worries me, even if I'm not a Nets fan, it's just, it's a young, impressionable team that Dwight could really kind of lord over very quickly. I mean, a lot of these kids watched him, like, growing up. And, and, and that's, that's my one concern, I guess, for the Nets, is, is what happens if, if Dwight infects this locker room anyway. Yeah, that wouldn't be ideal. I mean, the other, like, like locker room veterans are, like, Jeremy Lynn's, you know, a, a pretty good locker room guy, but was hurt most of last year. Um, oh, D'Angelo Russell. <laughs> another, <laughs> is, uh, another interesting is, uh, locker interesting. room guy. Yeah, he's he's definitely a locker room guy um, <laughs> uh, among other rooms. Unfortunately for for some of his former teammates, uh, although that former teammate's having a good week, so um, Man, what, he's doing ha- okay. what what happens what happens when when D'Angelo gets gets into a personal matter with uh, with Dwight Howard? <laughs> yeah, that's something. Um, I actually didn't realize it. I didn't think about like till just this moment about what the the ramifications. <laughs> of a locker room with Dwight Howard and D'Angelo Russell is. Uh, so yeah, that that's fun. Um, and then beyond that, it's like Damari Carroll and like a couple other guys. But uh, yeah, overall, I think it's a good move on paper. And you just hope that like, 
I mean, worst case scenario, like just just like don't have Dwight show up. If he's like that unhappy and he's like really a problem, you just eat his contract for the year and you just like tell him not to show up to the arena. Yeah, I mean, plenty of other teams <laughs> have done it. Um, I mean, the Spurs did it with a much better player this past year. Well, I don't know if I, they did it or I he know. did it or whatever, but it seemed like it was a mix of it was a mix of people involved. Whole mess. And now he might get traded by tomorrow. Um, I don't really. It seems like too quick a turnaround. But I mean, if they want to get some kind of NBA draft return, they obviously only have so long. Um, and you know, we didn't expect Jimmy Butler to get moved on draft day, and he did. So the NBA draft is wild all the time, and it helps that it's one night. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very excited just as like not a neutral observer because I have the Nets, but the Nets draft, you know, is, is going to be what it is. They're picking. I don't even remember late in the first round. Other than that, though, it's going to be pretty nuts. And and it seems like we have an idea of what the top three looks like, but beyond that, it's like a whole mess. I don't even think we have an idea of the top three, to be honest. Um, I, I feel like I feel like Aiton's going to go first. I feel like Bagley is moving into the number two spot. At least yeah, it sounds the- like Bagley and is just like kind of for whatever reason embrace Sacramento more than any other prospect, which is that <laughs> he didn't would. outwardly he didn't outwardly protest going there. Um, so it sounds like he's probably the guy at number two, which is a little weird. Although there were the pictures of Luka Doncic and uh, Vlade Divac that surfaced like a couple days ago. Um, and then the Hawks sounded like they were in on Doncic, but now it sounds like they might trade back. I just saw a thing where they might trade back and they're targeting Trey Young, which seems like a weird, dumb move, maybe. I mean, so, I, don't, I don't know what the hell the Hawks are anymore as a franchise. Like, imagine being a Hawks fan like three years ago, four years ago. Seeing what was coming yeah. together and then looking at it now, I just I, I I I'd be at a loss. It's tough because I think what they ended up doing was super pragmatic in terms of like they knew their window was pretty much shut after that sixty win year, and instead of like trying to prolong it and just dropping down to like oh now we're the five seed now we're the seven seed, they just like blew it up. And um, a lot of other franchises aren't brave enough to do that. The problem is that for whatever reason. Atlanta has never been a destination for free agents, even though NBA players seem to love it there, um, and a lot are from around there, or at least from the Southeast. And it just, you know, it's not a great fan base. It seems to have more going for it, like, on paper than it actually does in practice, and uh, that makes it very hard to... Like, that's why... That's, like, the other side of the tanking thing. Like, tanking sounds really, really smart in, in on paper in a lot of cases, but you, you never know that you're going to actually get back because the NBA can be such a crapshoot. And at the end of the day, so few franchises are consistently good, and it's like the same eight. Yeah, I, mean, I know I was looking at like NBA Finals results on Wikipedia today for some reason. And uh, if you take a, a glance at how many teams have won, it is a very short list of those who have won more than two. Um, it really is the same teams over and over again. Um, obviously, you know, Golden State decided to throw a good 40 years of futility in there. Uh, for good measure, but everybody else uh, in, in that top group has, has been has been good or, or something near good for for much of their uh, respective existences. Um, one team that has not uh, would be my New York Knickerbockers, who uh, who might just screw this up again. All they had to do was was stick around at number nine and pick uh, whichever you know perfect fit of you know. Bridges, well, Mikel Bridges or uh, Wendell Carter ended up falling to them miraculously. And instead, uh, they are trying to trade up to number four, it seems, because Memphis wants out of that spot because Memphis thinks it can contend right now. Um, that seems weird, especially in the West. I really don't buy it for them. It seems like there's more up there. Um, there was a rumor I saw bouncing around that maybe Doncic has, has uh, released a small... Uh, group of teams that he really wants to play for and that's scaring some of the smaller market teams off hence why teams like Atlanta and Memphis might be trying to bounce out um, Dallas seems pretty locked in on Mobamba at number five assuming he gets to them but um, given that Bamba and the Knicks had a meeting I think it was today or yesterday um, it seems like the Knicks are interested in Bamba I hate that because from a spacing standpoint um, it just doesn't make any sense for Christoph Porzingis um, I would I would happily moved to four for Doncic. Um, I, there's been a lot of trade ideas tossed out there. I would say something like Memphis's number four pick. Chandler Parsons has two years left at, at almost $50 million, um, on his contract, which sucks, but whatever. 
and then maybe uh, Macklemore package them for the Knicks number nine pick, Courtney Lee, um, and then I'd, I'd like to keep Frank. I'd like to keep the number thirty six pick. So I think you're either looking at like if they really want to aim high, Tim Hardaway. Um, if they don't want to aim that high, um, you can throw like Lance Thomas in there and 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 maybe like Moutier. Yeah, I think what makes this draft super interesting is, is that in the era of spacing the floor and shooting just being like so clearly the number one skill, there isn't a great shooter in the draft except for Trey Young. And even Trey Young, while he's a great shooter, like there's a good chance that he just will be too small, will be too much of a defensive liability, um, and will never really hit like star potential, like his star potential. Um, and beyond that, like, you have a lot of bids who can kind of shoot or are, like, attempting to shoot. Um, you have Doncic, who's not, like, you know, he he, he profiles more of a, a... He can shoot the ball from the outside, but that's not, like, his number one thing. So it's just really interesting to see um, these teams try to grapple with, like, what their needs are and what they want or how they want to fit players in. And it'd be a lot easier if there was just, like, a Clay Thompson here for some of these teams or right. someone else who's, like, number one thing is, like, all right, he's going to shoot 40%. And that you can just, like put that down and there's really one of those guys uh in young and he is has so many other question marks that he's not even like an obvious choice um now he's gonna be a top 10 pick in all likelihood but it's really made for a a very fascinating draft because at the same time like almost none of these guys are just like a total zero shooting um including like the seven foot centers like they all have like at least a little bit of that or or in in, to the case of jaron jackson um potentially really good Uh, he shot like 40 percent at michigan state last year but, you know, you look at him, and, and as Syracuse fans are probably a little um, a little more biased because we just watched him uh, not play any kind of meaningful <laughs> minutes in a tournament team that his team lost. I guess for every Michigan um, State player, though. That's true. But, like, he has, like, you know, some of the more interesting, like, two-way potential. So uh, I'm very excited for it um, just because, you know, and it's also, I feel like the NBA has it on the NFL now where the NFL draft was such a huge thing for so long. Um, it's almost easier to project like where these guys fit in or because it's only five players on the court at a time, you can kind of like see the picture of how these, these draft selections work like pretty immediately. So, and then you also have the potential of a huge trade like we had with Jimmy Butler last year on draft night where like in the NFL, you never see an established player like that move on a draft night trade. It just doesn't happen. So, um, or virtually doesn't happen. So yeah, the, going to be one of the more fun nights of the, uh, of the basketball year for sure. I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, hopefully the Knicks don't screw this up. Uh, I see Doncic as kind of like a Steve Nash type. Um, better scorer than Nash, but but somebody the, who can distribute and like isn't overly athletic, but just is smart. The uh, the comparison that I think is super interesting that I've heard, um, I think Bill Simmons and others make is uh, is James Harden, who's like he's uh, he can distribute, he can get to the hole. He's not in, like an elite shooter, but he's a, you know you can't leave him open, um, and just has like. Not he's not super athletic. Harden's not super athletic, but he just like has really good body control and just made things work. So I'm I've watched like a, you know as much Doncic as like you know people have seen from just internet videos. I'm like super intrigued by uh, what he can be in the NBA because it just seems like there's a chance of him being like this super unique player that we just don't have a ton of in the league. Versus like you know the bigs can all might all be good, or they there might be like one of the five big bigs that ends up being good and the other ones are all just like okay well he'll be around for a while to he's seven feet tall but um i feel like for for today's nba like the big is just not super valuable and it might come back around well the, the shooting big isn't super valuable the big that can shoot that can shoot from the perimeter is and i think the rim protector is but i think as far as a a big a, a, a like enos Cantor style big is not valuable in today's NBA. I mean, that's why Chandler Parsons is, you know, getting thrown in his trade bait. That's why, like, the league's changed so much in the last couple of years. Like, you need you need range and you need to be able to defend inside. If you can do those two things, you are suddenly a very, very valuable commodity. But if you're just one of those, like, you know, I'll put up some garbage 18 and 11, but I'm otherwise, like, crap on defense. Like, there, there, there are a lot of guys in the NBA who can give you that. Yeah, it, it's, 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 like, there's not that there's no role for them, but, like, Clint Capella is, like, a breakout player. He's probably going to get, like, a, if not a max deal, close to a max deal from Houston uh, soon. I think he's up. He might be up, actually be up this year. Um, and it's, like, a key part of that team. But if Clint Capella, knowing what we know now, was in this NBA draft, like, would he go first if you just knew exactly what he was at this moment? 
I don't know that he would. And yet, if DeAndre Ayton is, I mean, he's probably not the best comparison because he doesn't play the same way. But like, hypothetically, if a center was just like, you know, Clint Capella, um, or like, you know, some of these centers now, there's a good chance of them never being that good. And I don't know. It just seems like the draft hasn't quite gotten to where the NBA is in terms of their actual like what what is the most valuable thing versus like what's a nice thing to have uh, as like the third or fourth facet of your team and Walt Capella is like super valuable for the Rockets like he's not going ahead of, of James Harden and he's not going ahead of Chris Paul even at like 34 years old um, and he's not you know he's he's probably ahead of Eric Gordon but it's probably not as much as people think in terms of like importance so it, it's just interesting to see like the the value put on these seven footers who you know are definitely more skilled than they used to be but you know without without them being like you know, these elite shooters and also rim protectors, which a couple of them, you know, could turn into. Um, it's just interesting to see, like, four of the top five picks might be seven-footers. Yeah, definitely weird. I feel like next year and the year after, like, you're looking at, you know, players who are probably going to profile much more like the kind of guy I was describing, somebody who is more of a, you know, real inside-outside game, seven feet, can rebound, can block shots, but their their big value is is providing just an absolute nightmare for opposing defenses. I, I think, I guess, looking at what, you know, going back a little bit, looking at what Doncic is, I, I think he's one of the more can't-miss guys in this draft, if only because I think his, his absolute floor is like Tony Kukoc in his, in his prime. And, like, I'll take that going away, especially for if it's the Knicks, for a team that really has struggled with guard play. Um, I think, you know, what you talked about before, uh, all the wings in this draft are, and it really is like a, a very big man and wing heavy uh, lottery. All the wings in this draft are uh, like slashers for, for the most part. Like they're not guys who really excel hitting from outside, uh, you know, Trey Young being the exception. I am very curious to see what Colin Sexton could do when he's not the lone option on a team, uh, admittedly. But I, I, I really hope that, that that team he gets that opportunity for, again, is not the Knicks. Yeah, the, I, I, I've seen Setson a little bit, like penciled in a little bit for, for the Knicks, but it just doesn't seem like he makes a ton of sense next to uh, to Frankie Smokes. Like, I just, I like Colin Setson a lot. I think he could probably, he'll probably be a better shooter when he's not, you know, literally the only major option on this team. But he doesn't have that skill yet. And, you know, there's a good chance he'll never be, like, a plus three-point shooter. And I don't think you can have uh, an NBA team that at this point that doesn't have at least one like really a shooter, even though there's a chance that backcourt would be like really, really good defensively. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes like a, a if that's a great fit, but it could happen because it could just be like, you know, the Nets might just have him as like best guy available and, uh, so make many the teams still draft it out like that. Yeah. I think it really depends on what your, what your situation is. I almost wouldn't blame the Nets because Kristaps is likely going to be out for a lot of next year, if not all of next year. And in that case, like, just load up on talent but um yeah I'm, I'm really not sure what uh i don't know the knicks are in like a really precarious spot i feel like if they could move up it would behoove them but it's probably not worth the you know whatever they would have to give up and it's not like they have like a ton of assets that they're gonna be willing to move anyway yeah i mean and, and that's the big thing like if if they trade with the grizzlies they're i would only want to do it for Doncic, not bamba um and, and again like Sure, you, you get out from under like a couple years of Courtney Lee at like over $10 million a year. Maybe you get out from under Timmy, you know, hanging out in like the $14, $15 million range. A couple years out, that's great. But like you still have to take on Parsons for two years. And like it's not exactly going to be easy to, to, to ditch $25 million, you know, in, in 2019, 20, you know, when, when you definitely don't want him on the court anymore and, and you really need to move that salary if you want to make any sort of you know, bigger leap next year when, when Porzingis is probably at 100%. Um, that that all concerns me, but again, that, that that's kind of life with the Knicks, unfortunately, and uh, I should be used to it, and, and most other Knicks fans should as well. Yeah, you would think you would think you just kind of assume the worst at this point. I mean, I think no, most I do. do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I very much do. That's why that's why I'm fully preparing for us to draft like Trey Young or some BS, and and just not. And we're either going to make the trade. We're going to make the trade, and we're going to throw in, like, Frank in the 36th pick as a, as a kicker, like, just because. Or... If you traded Frank and the 36th to that Trey Young, that'd be really, really funny. Yeah, but we'd do it. Like, see, like that's the thing. Like, you're thinking about it. You're going, oh, yeah, the, the Knicks would do that. 
I can't rule it out. No, like it would be Lee, Frank, the 36th pick, the ninth pick, and then like they'd toss in like Moutier too, like just to like add insult to injury. Not like I love Moutier or anything, but that 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 does seem like the type of thing that the Knicks would just you know love lo- love to do to their fans as they they actively taunt and and hate their fans more than most teams uh, I, I've ever seen. That's what happens when you have James Dolan. He's just the difference. But you know what? He's, he's never... but he's not the difference in hockey. Well, he was for a while. I mean, they wanted to run. Um, I mean, it, it it was for a long time. The Rangers weren't like killing it. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of that's just because they bought too far into veterans. Like then, then the lockout allowed the first lockout allowed them to like kind of hit a hard reset. Um, so, admittedly, like he's kind of surrounded himself with smart people and just stayed out of it. And, and the Rangers until last year uh, did pretty damn well with him staying out of business. It's also probably, and I don't know this for sure, but I've always gotten the sense that he cares less about hockey than basketball. Well, he knows absolutely he, nothing about hockey. And I mean, I don't think he knows anything about basketball either, but he probably thinks he does. Yeah. And also, he doesn't have, like, the weird, like, Isaiah Thomas infatuation floating around in hockey, like, he, which is just one of the most mind-boggling I, things in sports. I, and that, that doesn't ever totally go away. Nope. Got, got, got nothing for you there. Uh um, before we hit halftime, I uh, figured talk a little bit about Syracuse for once, you know, that sort of thing, um, and where they could potentially, actually, no, you know what, we won't talk about where they could potentially go bowling, because I think we're way too far out. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, the basketball tournament, since, um, A, uh, Bayheim's Army got some sweet new jerseys from Puma, and B, um, I'm intrigued by, but I don't want it, I don't want to see it at the NBA level. Um, I'm intrigued by this uh, Elam ending thing that, that the basketball tournament is implementing for the entire uh, thing this year. Yeah, I remember hearing about this, I don't remember where, but like probably a year, year and a half ago on a, pod, a podcast, I think. It might have been like the 538, one of the 538 sports podcasts that doesn't exist anymore, or it might have been um, Hang Up and Listen, like one of the more like intellectual sports podcasts. And it was super intriguing then, and I kind of forgot it was a thing. I mean, it wasn't really a thing. No one was, like, using it. But I totally forgot they had, they had tried this for the playing games of the tournament last year. Um, yeah, I don't know if this is, like, a thing I would, like, like to see college basketball or the NBA go to, but I'm really, really interested to see it play out in, like, something I kind of care about like this. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I kind of care about it, and, and I it's such a novelty tournament. Like, I, I, don't, I don't really care enough to like protest about it. I mean, and let's see how it works. I I don't think it's ever going to be implemented past this tournament. So yeah, why not give it a shot? I I know a couple commenters were were vehemently against, um, if only because they felt like it changed the dynamic of the game um, in the last four minutes. Um, I would counter to them, like, then do you also hate college football overtime? Because that also changes the game in the final minutes. Uh, I mean, and the current game changes the game in the final minutes when you have fouling. Like, right, which this actively tries to get rid of. Yeah, I mean, this... this I, we, it's, yet, it's yet to be seen how it impacts, like, team strategies, but it encourages you to, you know, play to score and play to win versus, like, trying to run out the clock, which, I don't know, I I, I think you, you, you do lose a couple things. Like, we saw some pretty thrilling overtime in the tournament last year with Syracuse, with the uh, Bams Army team and others. Um, I don't know. Have we like crunched numbers to see how it would have worked out with the, uh, like how far we were back with the, in the, the huge comeback game last year? Like, I don't think we would have been close enough to. Yeah. I don't think we would have been close enough, but like, I don't know. It just seems kind of fun. It creates a buzzer beat. Like people love buzzer beaters. Now you've got one on every single game. Yeah. And, and there will, as they basically said, like there will be a shot that wins the $2 million, which is a really cool, that's a really cool, like, little added bonus for how this tournament works. So, yeah, I mean, it could end up being kind of a flop, but I bet at least, like, a couple moments in this tournament will be super exciting because of how this works. And at the end of the day, I don't think it, like, creates any huge um, disadvantage for either side compared, like, any more so than, like, a normal game is. And you probably have fewer games that end in a super boring fashion because there is this, like, kind of, uh, you know, race to the finish implement versus, like, you know, teams up 20, they're not able to ball out. Um, I think no matter what, like, the end of these games should be more exciting 
even if uh, it, it kind of you know radically changes what we're used to. No, completely. And like this is one of those things where, again, why not give it a shot? Like you're going to have at some point a team is going to be, you know, they're, let's say they're playing a 75 in this case. You're going to have a team that has, you know, 72 and you're going to have a team that has 74. Um, and the team that has 72 is just going to have to really just jack up threes, you know, and until they potentially hit something like, I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't mind this this setup as much as a lot of other people seem to be like, you know, vehemently opposed to it and, and just just can't stand the idea. Again, like look look at college football where um, you literally switch from playing checkers to playing chess um, or well, actually more like vice versa um, if you want to hold the analogy um, in college football over time where you go from playing a time-focused 100-yard game to playing a 25-yard um who can score more points than the other in the allotted like box type setup? Yeah, that is a pretty good comparison for it because it it, it switches like, I mean, I think that's more drastic. Even like this is still basketball. It's just like we're changing the the structure of how the game ends. Right. Um, but I mean, I, I think there's a very good chance that we end up seeing something that's closer to like the regular game of basketball for the last for the end of the game for more games than what we do when you have, like, the normal um, late-game situation. I do wonder how it's going to change strategy around fouling, just because it's going to be, you know, putting someone on the line when you only have, like, I mean, depending on what the score margin is, putting someone on the line if if it's a close game and you're both going for that seven points is, like, such a huge um, risk, even if it's a, even if it's a player who's a, a bad free-throw shooter. Right. It's still free points. <laughs> Yeah, if it's two or three, yeah, I mean, if they knock down both, like you're you're potentially giving away like uh, what's what's the the fraction there, like twenty eight, twenty nine percent of like the the total that they'll need to to death there if it's like a tie game with the seven point margin, right? Um, yeah, so I'm definitely uh, I'm interested. I'll be watching because this tournament's always super fun anyway. Um, I don't think this will affect that negatively in all likelihood, and if it does, then we'll just never hear about the Elam the Elam uh, finish ever again, and yeah. that's fine. It, it's worth finding out about. No, I completely agree. Uh, like, the, this, this seems this seems too interesting to pass up. I don't... It was a good article by Zach Lowe, but, like, I don't love hearing, like, you know, Mark Cuban and, like, Daryl Morey, like, hanging around going, oh, man, I gotta see this. Like, like I wanna see this for the NBA. Like, it's not happening in the NBA. So, like, let's let, let's remove that part because it's, it's, it's unrealistic. Yeah, and I think, in all, like, for... In all likelihood, it was more that, like, for those two guys, I'm not surprised that they're intrigued by the idea. Right. Um, most higher ups in the NBA are not uh, are not Mark Cuban or Daryl Morey in terms of being able being forward thinking and uh, embracing something like this. And you know, I mean, I don't think that they were like necessarily pushing for this to be the new way we do things. I think they just like enjoy weird stuff like this and will like to see like the sample size of, of data here. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and then maybe you know if it's a raging success, then maybe we see it like in the G League or in the in the Summer League or something like that. And I'm not opposed to that either because like that's what why, why else if we're gonna have like changes to these sports, like no one's gonna do anything super hastily. But we have like the G League and the Summer League where the stakes are pretty low, maybe even more low than the tournament to be honest, <laughs> um, at least on a team by team basis. Uh, so why not like check something cool out that might you know might be a a, a great no way to do this versus you know, what we have now, and it's not like the NBA doesn't acknowledge that the fouling is an issue at the end. Like, it's a talking point every single year. So I think we're we're nowhere near this becoming, like, the way people play basketball anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe, maybe we all watch this tournament and it ends up being, like, the coolest thing we've ever seen. Yeah, I'm hoping for it. I'm also hoping for a, another Bayheim's Army uh, Final Four appearance. So Yeah, oh, and now that we've talked about this, we're like, However many, however long, we should probably explain this. In, assuming people, not everyone knows what it was. Um, basically, at the uh, is it under four for the tournament? Yeah, it's that? yeah, it's at the four at the under four timeout. Um, they look at the scores and they add seven um, to the team that's in the lead, and that becomes the mark to hit um, in terms of uh, the end of the game. There's no clock anymore. Um, they're still fouling, obviously, but. So it, it allows for, you know, the team in the lead, if they're in, if they continue their strong play, 
they'll close out that that seven point gap pretty quickly and and, and hit and hit the mark if they don't it allows for the, the other team if they get hot shooting wise uh be able to come back without the hindrance of you know the clock running down and things like that yeah so if it's if it's 75 to 69 the first team to 82 wins no matter which of those teams it is so yeah it's it's uh it's super interesting um i'm really looking forward to seeing it on again like not that i I don't care about the tournament i went to multiple tournament games last year it's really really fun it didn't ruin my summer that Bayheim's army lost but i will be rooting for them uh passionately when this does roll around and and maybe this ends up screwing them over and then i hate this forever maybe (laughs) maybe i'm completely wrong on my actual like knowledge of my personal investment in this team uh, but we will find out, and as a Syracuse fan uh, and a Mets fan, um, I know that's a completely different sport, but it still applies. You need that something. may very well be the case. They're, they're, in all likelihood, I will hate this rule by the end of the summer, but we'll find out. Yeah, I, I'm cool with it. Um, speaking of things that could end up frustrating us, uh, Dan, what were you drinking this weekend? Um, I actually, are you anticipating me being frustrated with my drinking uh, choices? I mean, maybe. I think it's more just the, the, the stress that the stress of things that drives you to drink. Fair. Um, I had a pretty good, as, as promised, I had a, a pretty good weekend in terms of, of beers. Um, I had, I'll just sort of the highlights. Uh, I went to Dinosaur down by me here in Harlem, Dinosaur Barbecue. Um, had a Forever Ever by Other Half, um, which is a really solid uh, session IPA. I've had that a decent amount recently because it seems to be popping up a lot. Um, another bar, I had a, a Wrench New England IPA from Industrial Arts, uh, which is in the Hudson Valley. I've talked about them before. Um, definitely one of the better breweries that I've, I've kind of gone into recently, especially here in New York State. Uh, everything I've had from them has been quite good. Uh, this was no exception. Um, I had a Ground Loop Sour, which was a collaboration from Two Roads and Stillwater Artisanal, um, which was really delicious. Really enjoy, I mean, I enjoy most of the things that both those breweries do, so this was not really a surprise. Uh, and then I had a John Blaze uh, from Iconic Brewing here in New York, uh, another New England-style IPA, a little drier, definitely pretty citrusy. Uh, and then I had probably the best, definitely the best beer I had this weekend um, at a new uh, really cool beer bar in central Harlem called Harlem Hops, which I talked about I, that I was going to go to last week. Uh, I went um, the Woods and Waters from Maine Beer Company. Anyone who's listened to us a lot, you know, anytime Maine Beer Company comes up, you can be pretty sure that it's uh, fantastic. And this really was. It was a really, really delicious IPA. They use, like, all local ingredients uh, down to the barley and the wheat. And um, I'm not sure what the hop profile was on this, but just, like, one of the best IPAs I've had in a long time. Uh, and then uh, something different, since it was a very IPA-heavy weekend, um, at the same bar, I had uh, Fire Island's uh, Isla de F- del Fuego. Um, I wasn't into, uh, meaning to celebrate Mexico's win over Germany, but I did <laughs> uh, with this Mexican-style lager, which was really, like, a really, really delicious version of, like, a Dos Equis. Um, it's a, definitely a Mexican lager, pretty ambery, a little bit of lime, but uh, all, like, the spiciness and the, the those kind of flavors were really enhanced, so I enjoyed that um, a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, and I hadn't anything from Fire Island Brewing, uh, which I assume is Fire Island here in New York. Um, yeah, so I hadn't had anything from them before, and that was a pretty good introduction. Cool. Quite the extensive list. Um, I'm going to see if I can keep things succinct on my end, but as I mentioned last week, headed to the uh, LA Beer Week kickoff festival uh, downtown, so tried, ended up trying 32 different beers. Um, Actually, for, for, for my own survival, I, I actually started, like, pouring some stuff um, out after, you know, a few sips, if it was on the heavier side, just to, uh, again, you know, stay standing by the end of the day. Um, some of the things I had, uh, Celador um, from out here in L.A., and all these things are pretty much L.A. breweries or, or close to. Um, had a uh, Clockworks uh, barrel Saison. Saison. Uh, Modern Times from down in San Diego brought a... Uh, Yano Del Rio, uh, a beer that they made especially for the uh, event. It was a, a pineapple milkshake IPA that was really good. Um, Black Tuesday, uh, red wine barrel-aged from the brewery was super good. I've had a lot of different Black Tuesday variations. I had yet to have the red wine barrel-aged version. Uh, that one was super good. Um, Funk Works from out in uh, Boulder 
um, actually uh, was there with the Stone distri- uh, Distributing because they uh, they distro for them. They brought a uh, Raspberry Provincial um, sour that was super good. Uh, other things, Cellar Maker from up in San Francisco brought uh, Hopslang and IPA that I had from them as well as a Radio Edit Pale Ale. Um, Highland Park, I had a bunch of stuff from them during the day. Uh, they had Twice Pinot. I think that one was a Saison. Had Past Future. It was a New England IPA from them. Um, Drake's brought a really, really good Flanders Red, uh, Cultured Chaos. Uh, Drake's from up in NorCal. Uh, Beachwood Blendery had their uh, Frambique. It was a uh, Lambic style. Sorry, there's just way too many things here. Uh, had a couple of beers from Monkish while I was there once the lines died down um, over at their booth. Um, Unfold the Scroll and Simpleton. They were both um, double IPAs, both New England style. Uh, Firestone Walker had a uh, Hukasito, uh Hazy IPA with coconut that was uh, pretty good. Also had a uh, Patrick Hazy, which is just more fun for the name than anything else. Um, other things I had uh, Highland Park and another Hazy IPA was called Bad for Business. Also, oh, I also had, probably the highlight of the day was Highland Park's uh, Griffith J Griffith. It was an imperial uh, stout made with uh, some local coffee. Super, super good. Um, that one was 12.5%. I had that pretty late in the day. Um, so probably should have poured it a little bit more uh, just for my own well-being. But, uh, yeah, it was super good. Uh, definitely enjoyed that one. And then uh, I think I ended off with uh, Broad Acres, uh, Berliner Weiss with Passion Fruit from Phantom Carriage right over here in Carson. Um, and then when I got home, a couple hours later, managed to uh, to get through a uh, thing of the Wanderer uh, from Brewery Tarot. Also, uh, also stopped into Beachwood Brewing down in Long Beach for a uh, fresh pint of Melrose IPA, which is uh, among my favorites from them. So I said I was going to keep that succinct. I did not. But uh, yeah, quite a bit of drinking uh, this past weekend. Hooray for that. I mean, it is summer. So, you know, what else are we going to do? Yeah, it was, it was kind of my, like, big drinking event. I felt like that was my last, like, big drinking event um, for the foreseeable, well, at least for the time being. Um, you know, kid on the way and all. Can't just go out to, to beer events and just pound beers for hours on end. Yeah, I guess that's a fair a fair life decision. <laughs> I figured w- w- one last hurrah. My uh, my best friend from Syracuse was, uh, was there, so me and him got to kind of relive college and... Uh, and just drink w- without much care for, for repercussions. Always a good time. Um, I'll be down the shore this weekend, so I don't always find, like, great craft stuff everywhere, but hopefully a couple, like, at least Jersey-specific things um, since the Jersey scene's been uh, doing pretty well the last couple of years. Nice. Looking forward to that. I'll, uh, I'm sure I'll find some local stuff as well over here. But... Uh, now we move from beer to uh, Mountain West football, Dan. There's a uh, looks like Boise State's back based on based on everything I've heard this off season. Yeah, I was like kind of going into looking into stuff for this, um, hoping to come out with uh, a different conclusion, and instead, uh, Boise State's probably going to win the league again. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, I, I mean that's the thing. Like Ripian's so good. Um, I, I think him alone and just the defense is really good. The offense has just so many skilled players. Like I'd say most of the players that are, that could get drafted from the mountain West this year are on Boise state's roster. Um, the coaching's obviously great. Like even though it's been a couple like quote unquote down years for Boise, like they've still been a very good program. They've still out recruited most of the, the, the group of five. So um, from my perspective, like, it's really their conference to lose, and, and a lot of you know preseason top twenty-five see them kind of hanging around the top fifteen to twenty range. And I think you know if they manage to go unbeaten, um, given the schedule, I don't necessarily think they they can get much past ten. Um, you know, Oklahoma State a road game there would really be like your highlight. But um, still, you could definitely see the Broncos kind of you know upsetting somebody's uh, late December, early January. Uh, once again, given what's on this roster. Yeah, um, I mean, I think unless they really don't fare well uh, in, like, their big... in their big games at Oklahoma State, and I assume BYU will be better next year, but, you know, they're obviously coming back from a pretty rough season, especially by their standards. But overall, it's not like one of those stats where they have two, like, Power 5 teams and they knock them down, and 
Uh, last year, obviously, that chipped up a little bit early on, but they really found themselves midseason. But overall, I think they're probably the favorite to uh, to take that that G5 bid for the New Year's Six, I would imagine. I, th- I know we talked about FAU, and they could get there, but I think they'll really need they'll need to run the table to do it. Um, Boise could probably get there with like a, a loss um, out of Loma State. It's probably the toughest team in the schedule. Um, but like you said, like this is a really well-balanced team. Uh, they bring back one of the better quarterbacks in the country uh, in Rippon, who uh, had a weird start to last year, but ended up being like pretty fantastic in the second half. And then aside from uh, the linebacker Van Der Esch, who was the first round pick for the Cowboys last season, they bring back pretty much everyone on defense. Um, yeah, which and that was huge. a yeah, which was like a pretty like a top like what like a top fifteen twenty unit last year. Right. Um, so yeah, it should be a pretty great team overall. Definitely the Mountain West favorites will be favored in probably every game except for at Oklahoma State, and and I, it would not shock me at all if they went into Stillwater and won that game, considering Oklahoma State's replacing a lot. So yeah, I mean this could be a team that runs the table. I know Boise hasn't always had that, and they tend to slip up like at least once. But um, this should be a pretty fun, fun one to watch uh, as Boise State so often is. Yeah, I mean, how often since joining the Mountain West? Like, I don't has Boise ever run the table since they joined the league? I don't think so. I think the last time was it was the WAC season 2011. Uh, I'm looking. Now we're gonna we're gonna vamp a little bit around this. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know what? Like this might be. I don't think this is the best Boise State team um, of the last probably <clears> of <throat> the Mountain West years, but it it could be close. And, and again, they don't have to go undefeated for it to be close. Yeah. So the last time they ran the table was in 2009 when they won the Fiesta Bowl. The, they were 14 and 0 that year. Oh wow! Yeah. So that was um, that was the two, WAC. That was the second last year in the WAC. They followed it up with a one-loss season um, in 2010. Uh, I forget who the loss was to. 2010. Was that Oregon? Was that when they? That sounds right. No, they actually. That was the year they lost to Nevada on the on the field goal. Oh, because then they didn't they lose another dumb one to Nevada like a couple years later. Um, they had. This one was the loss Kaepernick to, loss. They had one loss the following year, um, which was their first year in the Mountain West. And that was to TCU. That makes sense. It was still in the Mountain West at the time. That you understand. Uh, and then the year after, they had two losses. So were there two Nevada games? I thought there were two Nevada games. If only I might be misremembering, but I thought there were two Nevada games. I thought there was one with Kaepernick and one without. Um, if only because I remember watching it in San. Fr- I thought I remember watching it in San Francisco, and that would have in my last apartment in San Francisco which would have met the 2012 no 2011 2000 would have been the 2011 game i guess i think this first one this 2010 game uh let me see if i can find the box store and see if Kaepernick was playing um he was okay he was and the end of the game it was both it's the same game um oh, okay yeah it was uh it was uh, it went to overtime. Basically, Boise had a chance. Like um, they were number three country, and they lost to Nevada in the second to last game of the season. Yeah, I knew I knew I was probably remembering correctly, but yeah, I, sometimes things just merge. You can only fit so much stuff before it everything just kind of blends together. I'm trying to think what what college football what national championship was 2010. Uh, could not tell you. Yeah. Um, that was that. Oh, that was one of the Alabama. That was, uh, no, that was uh, Auburn over Oregon. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. So, would would there have been a chance of Boise stealing the Oregon spot? I think Auburn was number one. I don't think so, because who did Oregon lose to that year? I don't think Oregon was undefeated, were they? Mm, they might have been, actually. Uh, they were undefeated in conference. Yeah, so I think they were, actually. They were 9-0 in Pac-12. Yep. Pac-10 at the time. Only loss, and then Auburn obviously went undefeated. So yeah, they wouldn't have gotten in anyway. No, they would have. They would have potentially made the playoff. Yeah, if there was a playoff, Boise State would have made it had they, you know, had it existed at the time, right. and had they beaten Colin Kaepernick led Nevada, uh, and unfortunately they did not. That's fine, I guess. I can. I think everyone can kind of deal with that. Although the playoff that year, well, if you go by the final ranking, Stanford would have made it. But anyway, we don't have to. We don't have to go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The alt reality 2010 playoff that, that doesn't involve that probably doesn't even involve Boise State. Um, anyway, 
So we'll get back to the mountain division because I feel like, you know, there, there, there are other stories besides just Boise. But um, in the West, I think things get a little more interesting. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a part-time San Diego State homer um, based on my, you know, in-law affiliation there. Uh, but a lot of people are still pretty high on Fresno. I think it. I, th- I still think San Diego State's win this division. To be honest, I think they barely lost the last year. SDSU just does like a lot of like really dumb stuff at the beginning of every season. I feel like without looking at the the results, I'm pretty sure like the last three, maybe four years, they've started off like really poorly, and then kind of you know righted the ship. Uh, last year, I think the only reason they they missed the the championship game was just because of uh, the head to head loss to Fresno. Um, that was a surprise at the time. Um, Obviously, like if you're looking at a quarterback that's not Brett Ripien, uh, Marcus McMarion uh, for Fresno is is probably the guy for you, and he's another one who could potentially have some pro prospects, I guess. Um, but you know, Fresno is really going to be relying on that offense, while San Diego, um, you know, has a really good running game once again. Is going to struggle passing the ball, but if they can run well and play defense as well as they have in recent years, like I, I see that as a better recipe for success than Fresno trying to potentially outscore, um, you know, a lot of teams in this conference. Yeah, I, I think San Diego State definitely has the more uh, reputable model, and I'm also like a bit spooked by the fact that that Fresno made such a monumental jump from year to year. Um, what were they the year before Tedford took over? Four and nine, they were really bad. Like they were, they they bottomed out, and then Tedford was like kind of an interesting hire because he, you know, obviously coached at Cal forever, and like it made sense in terms of geography. But like, it was hard to tell what the upside would be for a guy like that. He was you know, kind of a retread, and they exploded last season. Um, it wouldn't shock me if they took a step back. Uh, I haven't like poured through the numbers well enough to like know if they had like some crazy luck last season. Um, or, like, project as a team that could come back to the pack based on, like, a lot of close wins. Um, versus the San Diego State's just been so reliable over 10 years. Um, and you know what they're going to be. They're going to play some of the best defense in the Mountain West. They're going to run the hell of the ball. Um, they've now proven, like, it seems like their running game is more of, like, a, a replicable system than it is just one guy because we've now had two back-to-back 2,000-yard rushers. Um and uh, I think the who, who's taking over the running backs about this year? Um, running backs, uh, Juwan Washington this time. Yeah, and I think his numbers obviously um, when you had Rashad Penny who ran for two thousand yards, like he didn't have so many attempts, but I think his numbers were pretty uh, pretty good overall. Yeah, seven hundred and fifty nine yards, six yards a carry last year. Yeah, so it they'll seems like <laughs> it seems like they'll be fine there. Um, so yeah, I would give the edge to San Diego State. I think they. Um, just are really proven. Like, Rocky Long's just done such a nice job there. You know, I, I think that they're probably still a, a step or two back from Boise. But um, you would think they could win, like, nine or ten games once again. Yeah, I mean, they've just been consistent there. And I've said this numerous times, and so have others. Like, it it shouldn't be this hard to, to recruit to San Diego. Um, obviously, if the Aztecs get the funding for, uh, for their near-campus stadium, uh, versus, you know, them playing at the uh, San Diego County Credit Union, formerly Qualcomm Stadium. Um, not that close to campus. It's literally impossible to get in and out of that area on a game day. So if they could get a brand new stadium that fit a more appropriate 30000 or so, like, they would be benefited quite a bit. Um, again, like, it, it shouldn't be that hard to, to recruit you to the city. It's more the program, and I think the program is, is finally lifted itself up to a level where it's, it's very easy to buy in um, under long. Um, obviously, Washington put up great numbers, as we mentioned. He is a smaller back. He's only about 5'7", 190. But uh, they bring back four of their five starters from last year on the line. Uh, Christian Chapman's back quarterback. Like, that's a team that, you know, they don't have to be electrifying on offense to just be consistent. And I think that's going to happen once again. Um, San Diego State does bring back um, about half the defense. I think they... At least, I feel like they lose a balanced portion. Like, they lose about half the defensive line. They lose two, one out of three linebackers, and they lose about half the secondary. So, like, that that's replaceable, and, and it's not as if they had, didn't get minutes from, from those other guys. Um, Fresno brings back everybody on defense except for the entire defensive line. And, and, and those, like, full unit turnovers, and, and Syracuse fans will be probably uh, a little worried when we mention this, like, Full unit turnovers are a lot more difficult to, to manage and stomach 
Um, so was the case with SU replacing their entire linebacker unit. But um, I think with Fresno, um, I don't have the, the sack numbers in front of me, but I would assume um, you know that defensive line uh, really paid a big difference last year. Um, and losing them and the pressure they were able to generate, um, probably not a, a great start to them on the defensive side of the football. Yeah, I, I'm just like, it's just been such a, a prolonged stretch of success, especially on that end, that I'm like, it's when, with those other teams, you kind of struggle to worry about them. It's like Kansas State. Like, you kind of know what Kansas State's going to be every year, um, and they might be, like, a, a tick better or a tick worse. But I'm never, like, super worried about knowing what Kansas State's going to do, especially on defense. Right. Just looking at some of the rest of the league, bouncing back over to the mountain, um, Wyoming presents a They've become one of the more intriguing programs in the country to me. Um, not just because, like, you know, anyone who listens to uh, podcasting played nobody probably hears a lot about Wyoming from uh, Stephen Godfrey, but in general, like, Craig Bowles just put together like something interesting in a place where there wasn't much interesting going on ever. Um, the Cowboys have become kind of fun. Obviously, they uh, they hit a hard reset without Josh Allen at quarterback, but most of the defense is back. Um, and I think that was, you know, one of his bigger calling cards uh, for the later years at North Dakota State and, and the years since he left North Dakota State. Like, I think this team is scheduled difficult in, in a lot of ways. Uh, they host Washington State in, uh, in effectively week one. I know they're at New Mexico State in week zero. Um, and then they head to Missouri on the road um, on September 8th. So... Potentially taking two losses early. We'll see what Washington State is, but Missouri should be able to beat them at home. Um, they're hosting Boise. They're at Fresno. Um, far from easy here. Uh, they also have, you know, some some what would be toss-up games on the road at Colorado State and at New Mexico. So Wyoming obviously going, you know, under a little bit of change, but it does seem like the bones are starting to get there in, in terms of, you know, a program that that can seemingly replace um, some of its talent, even if not, you know, top 10 NFL draft pick talent. Yeah, and there's also a chance that Josh Allen sucks. I, I Well, I, I actually believe that. <laughs> I, I, like I, not I, at the I, NFL level? There's a chance Josh Allen sucked at Wyoming? Yeah. There's, the numbers um, there weren't really that impressive either. No. Yeah, so I'm not that worried about them replacing Josh Allen. I know he can make throws and, you know, is big and, and tall, but, like, his numbers weren't great. <laughs> and... Like, I know, like, he has, I get why he was an NFL talent, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was great at Wyoming, and it doesn't necessarily mean that what he could do there was not replicable by um, whoever they have stepping in. I do think they're definitely one of the more interesting teams. I kind of wonder what the impact on them will be with Idaho going away, or going down a level. Like, I'm not sure, I think it, it might just be more, like, in my head, and also because you already have such like a, a strong list of FCS powers uh, still in the area, it, the impact might not be all that much. But um, it is interesting that like one of the only other FBS programs, along with Boise and, I guess, Wazoo counts, um, in that like whole region going away, I wonder if it like opens up a little bit more for Wyoming. Yeah, I mean, very well could. Um, I, I am always curious. North Dakota State decides to jump. Uh, maybe they just get bored of the uh of the annual thrashing of, of everybody that's not like james madison but hey uh yeah I, I think idaho going away could potentially help them out a little bit and i think you know bulls recruited well enough um it, it's not really that easy to recruit to wyoming so obviously he always has his hands full but you know he, again he, he's done pretty well um he can thank um you know, Eric Dungy for, for the reason why he got Josh Allen and, and, and got Wyoming some more attention. It always comes back to Eric Dungy. It does. And this one actually does, though. Since, <laughs> since, since Dungy's decision to not go to Wyoming and pick Syracuse is the reason why they got Josh Allen. That is pretty funny. Uh, I had heard that before. Where was Allen going to go otherwise? Uh, Eastern Washington? I don't know. <laughs> hmm. and, and we would never would have known the legend of future Buffalo Bills third stringer, Josh Allen. Christ. All right. Uh, I know we're already kind of like, we're not in overtime yet, but we're getting close. Utah State is just whatever to me at this point. Like, they return most of the team this year, and I still really don't know what to think of them anymore. Um, yeah, but, if there's no Chuck Keaton, I'm all, all interested. No. And like, we, got, we got like six years of him, so. I mean, Jordan Love's not bad. Seems like they passed the ball well. 
It's just like Matt Wells is just like good enough. Like through six years, he's thirty four and thirty two. Yeah, I mean that's that's probably a tougher job than we think because like it's not like Utah is this huge um, talent base. Talent base and Utah and until last year BYU have both been like really really consistently good and they're eating up a lot of the uh, you know the Mormon players, which is obviously a an inefficiency I guess you have to draw from. Not that every player in Utah is Mormon, but um, and then you also have like other programs kind of recruiting in that same kind of area, all the California schools, um, even Hawaii dipping in, uh, with a lot of the guys that, you know, Utah state might go after. Um, yeah, I kind of think that's probably like a, a tougher job that has been relatively good, um, for a while now, uh, than what we think. It's also like, you know, you're the clearly the third team and not a big state, which, which adds in more, uh, more issues. Agreed. Um, a completely different issue for Colorado State, though. Um, brand new stadium. Uh, seemingly a lot of money being poured into athletics. Um, I really like their just athletic rebrand in general, where they seem to be leaning into like the old school Ram gear. Um, so I'll give them credit for that. But at the same time, like Mike Bobo is kind of hanging on to like promise, and, and and I think at some point, like Colorado State's going to need to cash that in, um, or else people are going to start getting annoyed. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's recruited quite well. Um, yeah, very. And he has a really nice, like, I think Fort Collins is probably one of the better uh, G5, like, destinations in terms of, like, town. And, and it's a, I think it's a relatively big state school. Yeah, proximity um, it, to Denver, too. Like, there's a lot There's a lot to like. Colorado's a relatively, like, in, in terms of that area, there's a good amount of talent there um, to mine from. It, it seems like Colorado State is doing a lot. Like, they're putting themselves in position to try to remain relevant through, like, whatever happens in realignment. I know they were, like, half involved in the Big 12 stuff. I think they were always they're always a name out there. I think it would have to be the Big 12 at this point if they were to move up, and I think there are other schools that are just way more interesting. But um, I do credit them. Like, they, they seem to be forward-thinking and aggressive. Uh, the new stadium definitely shows that. It looks like it's going to be really nice. And, uh, I mean, they've just been a solid program for a while. Um, I, it almost feels like Bobo was, like, one of those guys that you expected to try to like use this as a jump uh, you know he definitely was because every coach who goes to a colorado state type program is using it as a jumping board but it seemed like when he got there like you you could kind of see him being there for two or three years kind of like McElwain was and then moving on and he hasn't just he just hasn't gotten to where he can easily go get another job but you know i, I it also feels like there could be a, a 10 win year like around the corner somewhere so um i don't know that that'll be this year i think the mountain west is probably just too strong ahead of them but I'm sh- I'd be so shocked if they weren't at least like a pretty decent club. Yeah, I'd agree there. So I think that I think that's your your mostly unquestioned top six. Um, I don't want to dive into the rest as deep, but if you had to pick one of the other six teams in this league to like jump up into that top half, like who who would you go with? Oh, I think I'd probably go UNLV. I think the offense might just be like nuts, and they could win a bunch of stupid games. Um, I buy but they're going to give a lot of points. I think you'd say the same thing about, uh, about Nevada. Those two schools are both like just totally crazy teams. But San, uh, Tony Sanchez, we've talked about a decent amount on here, um, has been like just incrementally building that program up. Um, I think he's like literally put on like gained a win a year, uh, and he, that team was really bottomed out when he got there. I think they were two and eleven. And even last um, year, the years. I mean, you lost to Howard to start the season. <laughs> Yeah, which was fluky. Um, that was about the biggest the biggest point spread upset in possible history. Well, there also never uh, should have been a point spread on that game. Yeah, I mean most most places you won't get a point spread on a game like that. Yeah, just uh, they're they're definitely really fun. It, they'd probably need to be like a, a real like crash and burn defensive team where they're picking people off and and their offense is just kind of unstoppable. But overall, like uh, I. I would be a little shocked if they really challenged at the top of the Mountain West. It wouldn't shock me too much if they were like, you know, if they had a nice jump up and won seven or eight games, that might not be too surprising. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Vegas is growing as a city. Um, Obviously, like the Golden Knights' success during the hockey season helps. Obviously, the Raiders moving there helps, and the Raiders bringing a brand-new stadium with them that UNLV will play in really helps. Um, You look at this team, they bring back most of them. They bring back pretty much every skill player, most of the offensive line. Uh, they bring back most of the defense, and you look up and down the depth chart, uh, most of them are sophomores, juniors. 
So this team's only going to get better, um, if not this year. I think the prime for liftoff next year, where uh, you know if San Diego happens to take a step back or Fresno starts to take a step back, like UNLV could actually surprise and maybe even win the division. Um, I, I, that sounds weird, but at the same time, look look last year, um, where even the, the the class of the division in the West with Fresno and uh, and San Diego uh, managed to trip and fall a little bit. You know, so U, UNLV could actually start to challenge. Um, they're recruiting well uh, for the Mountain West anyway. Um, again, the resources are starting to come in. The city is kind of rising around them. So uh, they're definitely my interesting pick there. Um, I think New Mexico is going to bottom out this year. I think Air Force is probably going to tread water well enough to like five or six wins. And then San Jose is screwed, and I think Hawaii is kind of screwed too, despite the fact that I, I do like what Rolovich has done there. Yeah, I think Rolovich has done a nice job. It's just such a... a arduous, you know, uphill battle he has. New Mexico, I'm shot Bob Davies still has a job. <laughs> uh, I no comment. <laughs> he's facing, what, a, a month suspension? Yeah, he's... He, I, I think he's he's gone before the season starts. It, it's, I, like, just looking into stuff today, it, I was actually, like, reminded he didn't get fired, which is, like, bizarre. I, I get nothing for you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Not a very controversial take. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think UNLV definitely has a ton of potential. Um, there's no reason why they can't recruit with the top of this league, just because they have one of the most attractive, I mean, probably not for everyone, but, like, one of the most biggest cities, growing cities. It is Vegas, which is probably a little dangerous, but they have, like, a bit of a sports tradition. It's a growing sports town. They're going into an NFL stadium soon. Yeah, you just think that the, the things will line up. And also there's, like, some of those, like, uh, those Vegas area, like, sports academies, um which produce a lot of, like, high D1 talent. You could start building inroads there and, and try to, like, keep some of those, like, mid-level guys at, at a, a UNLV if they like being in the area. I feel um, like Sanchez so. has those guys, too. He coached, uh, where was, what, what school was that? Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the, the high school that Tony Sanchez coached at. Yeah, is exactly <laughs> where. Is the school that we're referring to. Bishop Gorman. There you go. Yes, that one. Bishop Gorman produces a lot of high FBS talent, and uh, you would assume there's also some middle FBS talent there as well that he can tap into. And that was a you know that's why the hire was interesting from the start. Like they they went in a very different direction. We've seen a couple of those hires at this level um, in recent years, and I don't think any of them are progressed enough like uh, to to really say that they've worked out or they haven't. But at least they're like forward thinking, and it's not just like oh we went and hired the defensive coordinator from. Utah, who <laughs> was good, I guess, and that's the state next door. Right. No, I, I, I've, I know we talked about this a lot. I, I see UNLV rising, and uh, I think that's where we can end it because I, I don't think there's any mystery around picking who's going to win this league. No, Boise. I, I have Boise over San Diego State. I don't know if you have Fresno sneak. Okay. San Diego for me, mostly because um, I am a little bit of a homer on on that front. I just trust them a little bit more. I think Fresno might have the higher upside, but, like, they're just, like, a rock. Like, you know what you're getting from San Diego State, and I just feel better about them, and I'm, like, really worried about progression to the mean from Fresno because the job that, like, the, the increase last year was insane. Like, there's no way Fresno should have been as good last year as they were. Tedford did an amazing job, and if they drop down to, like, eight wins this year, I don't think, like, that is any kind of uh, condemnation on his coaching ability. I think that's just more a more logical step for where Fresno should be at this point. Yeah, 100%. All right, so there's your Mountain West preview. Um, Dan, anything else before we depart? Uh, yeah, I can bring this up now. Um, on August 16th, uh, and I assume I can bring this up because there's a Facebook event now, and yep. it seems fairly official, um, I will be talking at uh, the Syracuse Alumni of Westchester slash Fairfield County. Uh, they're having a beer tasting and SU football talk with uh, special guest me um, at uh, Broken Bow Brewery in Tuckahoe, New York, which is in Westchester County. Um, as far as I know, this is a free event. I'll try to get more info on it, and we'll bring it up you know, down the road. But it's August 16th. Uh, we'll be doing mostly football talk. I'm sure I can talk basketball if people are interested in that. Um, but mostly, come down, drink beers. Uh, it should be a good time. Hang out with some other local SU alum if you're in the general New York City tri-state area. Yeah, so basically just have a real-world version of this podcast minus me. It really is. It's like exactly, <laughs> it's exactly what this podcast is, except for John. And I will be willing to talk about whatever nonsense you want me to talk about. Fair enough. Uh, I, I will mail in a Tulane question. Please do. <laughs> yeah, 
if anyone's attending and, and wants, wants, wants planted questions for me, I, I will be happy to seed them. Um, <laughs> if anyone pulls out cards, I'm just, I'm just going to laugh really hard. Fair enough. Um, all right. So that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.